Well, this week I've had it confirmed to me, if ever I needed it, that I would never make it in the army. Uh, the BBC are running a documentary at the moment on young enthusiastic recruits to the British Army getting their first taste of what it really involves. And what it involves is not for me. Uh, crawling through freezing mud, and going on route marches carrying heavy bags until you, you're so tired you can barely see, eating slop from a bag, being scolded for not hanging your clothes exactly four wing fingers' widths apart. And that's before any of the fighting begins. Now, unsurprisingly, it's not far into the documentary before the first recruit gives up and goes home. It'd be interesting to see how many of them lost the course. Giving up can be very tempting, can't it? In the army, I'm sure, and in gospel ministry as well. I mean, you take someone like the Apostle Paul. In the years before writing this letter, he's been hunted all over Europe by his own people. His own people hate him for becoming a Christian. He's a heretic, they say. He's a turncoat, a traitor to his nation. Now, being hated by anyone is hard enough, but your own people? It might actually be that you've experienced something like that, your family thinking that you're crazy for what you believe. It's really difficult. And then for Paul, there was the discouragement of seeing people in whom he deeply invested deserting him for frauds. Some of these Corinthians here ditching Paul in favor of the the gleaming white teeth of the so-called super-apostles. So deflating. It's still deflating, isn't it? That Christian to whom you've given so much of your time, getting caught up in silly ideas, increasingly drawn away to some vague or dangerous preacher they found online. What's the point? Might as well give up. And what makes all of that harder is that even when good things are happening, we often can't see it. The results of the gospel as it grows are often invisible to our human eye. The gospel ministry is done by faith and not by sight. And that can make it very hard as well. I've, I've heard people say, and I believe it, that lots of church ministers like to have hobbies with visible results. So on their day off, they'll like to uh, finish a jigsaw or build a shed I can't do that. Uh, learn to do woodwork or, or whatever, just to feel the satisfaction of starting a job and then finishing it and seeing what you've done. So much of gospel ministry is invisible. Whatever our part in it is, the gospel grows slowly and invisibly in the heart, in the heart of the people in your Bible study or the heart of the person with whom you're reading the Bible one-to-one. -one. It's wonderful, but it's, it's hard when you can't see it. You give a youth talk and nothing seems to happen. You share the gospel with a colleague and they seem to have forgotten all about that conversation the next day. That your family devotions feel like speaking into the wind. What's the point? Why not just give up? Paul says, no. Don't give up. See how he begins there in chapter 4. Therefore, verse 1, have a look. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't give up. We're not disillusioned. For all the struggles, we keep on speaking the gospel. Why? How? Well, let's find out. We're going to see three keys to keeping going here in verses 1 to 6. And the first is to remember the Lord. Very simple. Remember the Lord. Verses 1 and 2. Now, before Paul tells us um, how to keep going, he, he reminds us what keeping going in 
this gospel work looks like, or, or first of all, actually, what it doesn't look like. Verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Now, Paul may have had in his mind those so-called super apostles, but probably people within the Corinthian church claiming to teach the Bible. Now, there are clues later in the letter that they were happy to talk about Jesus and the gospel, but it was their own version, a watered-down version, a, an attractive to a Corinthian kind of version, maybe a Jesus who called for faith but no repentance, no change. A gospel with Jesus as Savior or maybe as therapist or cheerleader, but not Jesus as Lord. Of course, you don't have to be a super apostle or a false teacher to be tempted to change the message, do you? Uh, Long-distance runners uh, talk about hitting the wall. Uh, it's a moment in the run when you suddenly lose all your energy and presumably your motivation, and your body is screaming at you to give up. Now, I know we've got some really good long-distance runners in our, uh, in our church family. In my cross-country days at school, everyone had to do cross-country. I used to hit the wall after about 10 paces. And for the rest of the run, as I dragged myself around, what I can promise you is the most boring course you can possibly imagine. How you can call running around the inner streets of Reading cross-country, I don't know. <laughs> I would dream longingly of a shortcut. Nip through there, hop over that fence, finish first. Shortcuts can be so tempting in gospel work. Uh, maybe people aren't responding the way you want them to. Numbers are dropping. Uh, none of my friends are interested. We, we haven't seen anybody become a Christian through, through my ministry for months. The, the ministry's sagging. The, the temptation to take a shortcut, to change the message, to make it more palatable, easier to swallow, it can be very, very strong. And quite subtle too, just turn down the volume on the, the harder bits. Uh, uh, turn up faith and turn down repentance. Turn up God's love, turn down God's judgment. Smooth it off, water it down, add some sugar. Paul says, I refuse to do it. I refuse to practice cunning, to trip or to track people. I refuse to tamper. I refuse to edit God's word. You, know, you can edit God's word both by adding things to it or by removing things from it. So you can functionally, practically deny, for example, the doctrine of God's judgment at sin, either by actively denying it, telling people that you don't believe it, it's not true, or just by never teaching it, never talking about it. It has the same effect in the long run. You will be able to find preachers online who claim to be Christian ministers who never say anything that you'll disagree with. Everything that they do say is in the Bible, what about the things that they never say? What are the things that you're never hearing? Paul's ministry, verse 2, he says, by contrast, was an open statement of the truth. Complete transparency, no tricks, no crafty tactics. He simply unveils the gospel. He puts the gospel on display. That's all he does. You think of the opening of some uh, art exhibit. Uh, a world-famous artist has produced their latest masterpiece, and today the world gets to see it for the first time. And you have the privilege of being the person to pull the cord that removes the covering to unveil the painting. You haven't painted it. You haven't picked up a paintbrush. All you have to do is to pull that cord and unveil it, put it on display. That's Paul. The gospel is God's masterpiece. 
Paul's job isn't to create it or try to improve it, to take bits off that people might not like. His job is simply to show it off, an open statement of the truth. Now, part of it was, of course, trying to persuade people. When he summarizes his ministry in Ephesus, for example, back in Acts 19, he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So he was thoughtful. He worked hard to communicate in a way that his hearers would understand and find persuasive. But the one thing he would never do is change the message. He never took a shortcut. He never watered down the gospel. He knew that that would amount to giving up. And the reason he wouldn't, there in verse 2, the reason he wouldn't take a shortcut or give up on the truth of the gospel, verse 2, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He remembered the Lord. He remembered that his ministry was conducted in the sight of God. He was commissioned by God. His ministry commended and endorsed by God. He spoke God's message in God's sight. And it's the same with us, isn't it? When you go to work looking for chances to share the good news of the Lord Jesus with colleagues, you do so in the sight of God. When you do family devotions together, you sit as a family in the sight of God. Every youth talk, every fellowship group study, every one-to-one, every gospel opportunity is in the sight of God. And when I remember that, when I remember the Lord, I won't cut corners, I won't change the message, I won't lose heart and give up. I'll keep saying exactly what he's told me to say. And when it comes to the results of the gospel, I'll secondly remember the enemy. Verses 3 and 4, remember the enemy. The results of Paul's open and transparent ministry were decidedly mixed, just as the Lord Jesus' ministry on earth had been previously. Now, there are moments in in John's gospel where the crowds are deserting Jesus in their droves. He's been too plain speaking for them. He's said things that are too hard to accept. And to such an extent that Jesus turns to his disciples and says, do you want to go away as well? Paul's ministry followed the same pattern. Some wonderfully believed, but many, many angrily rejected. And it did bother Paul, and particularly when it came to his own people, the Jews. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, he says in Romans 9. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Can you hear his heart? If only they'd believe. If only they'd turn and be saved. And we feel the same. So many reject our message. If only my colleague would show even the slightest interest in the Lord Jesus instead of smirking whenever I mention him. If only my daughter would want to come to church. Seeing others hear the gospel and reject it is desperately sad. And after a while, as we keep seeing this happen, we can begin to blame ourselves. It must mean that I'm not good enough at sharing the gospel. If I could say it in a more persuasive way, if I had cleverer arguments, if I could think more quickly on my feet, I don't have enough training, I need to read more books on it before I try to speak about Jesus. Is that really the problem? What does rejection of the gospel really mean? Easy to get things wrong, isn't it? Years ago, uh, some friends and I were watching a film about World War II. I can't remember what the film was called or really what happened in it. The only thing I can remember is that it was in black and white, 
with occasional flashes of green. Now, that sort of thing isn't unheard of, is it? Um, if you've ever seen the film Schindler's List, you'll remember that it's in black and white with one particularly memorable use of red. So I think we assumed that something similar was going on here. So we watched the film all the way through in black and white with occasional flashes of green. And then we spent quite a while afterwards discussing what the green meant. What was the director doing? Uh, was it a sign of victory? Someone said that they thought that the, the Nazis had been sort of greenish at the start, and as the tide of the war had turned, the, the green had been more connected with the Allies. What did the green mean? We stroked our chins. We thought deep and profound thoughts. We came up with sophisticated theories, marveling at the genius of the filmmaker and at the genius of our own pet theories, until one of us went behind the TV and noticed that the cable connecting the TV to the DVD player wasn't pushed in properly. It was a full-color film. It just wasn't plugged in. And we all felt very sheepish. What does rejection of the gospel mean? Does it mean that we're not clever enough? Our presentation wasn't slick enough. We didn't present good enough arguments. Paul here says, no. Gospel rejection simply means that the enemy is at work. Remember the enemy. Verse 3. Even if our gospel's veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the enemy, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who is the God of this world? It's Satan. He hates the Lord, he hates humanity, he hates the gospel. And he's determined to stop as many people as possible seeing the glory of Christ. It's as though Satan ties a blindfold around a person's spiritual eyes to stop them seeing the glory of God in the gospel. Now, a couple of our members recently went to see the Aurora Borealis, those fantastic lights that you can see in the Arctic Circle and elsewhere. A stunning multicolored display Imagine you trekked across the world to see it. And they put on a blindfold to add to the anticipation, right? And you lead them into the best viewing spot. And here comes the dazzling, beautiful, shimmering lights. And your friend, you notice, is still wearing the blindfold. It's amazing. Take the blindfold off. I say, ah, you know, I've, I've gotten used to it now. To be honest, I prefer the darkness. That's... Everyone without Christ. By nature, our eyes adjust to the darkness. When the gospel's preached in all of its glory and its beauty, unless God works a miracle, all a person sees is darkness. Sometimes this is very obvious, isn't it? You'll have stories like this too, I'm sure. A few years ago, I was, I was I'm preaching here at our carol service from John chapter 1. And over the course of the 10 minutes or so, I try to explain as clearly as I could, that by nature we love the darkness. We're sinful, each of us. We have a deep darkness inside us. We're, we're drawn to it. And we need the saving light of the Lord Jesus to come bursting in. It's our only hope. I did my very best to be clear and transparent, to simply unveil the gospel. And afterwards, I stood outside saying goodbye to visitors. And a, a very friendly chap came up to me. He said to me, thank you so much for what you said. I completely agree with you. I think there's real good in each of us. I couldn't believe it. 
How could he so misunderstand the message? He was wearing a blindfold. He couldn't. He wouldn't see the truth of the gospel, and he wouldn't see it until God removed the veil. Paul finds gospel rejection deeply sad, but it doesn't make him lose heart. He isn't tempted to berate himself or question or change the message because he remembers the work of the enemy. He knows that whenever the gospel is preached, Satan is right there trying to blind people to the glory of Christ. And they will remain blind until God does for them what God had done for Paul on that road to Damascus. So thirdly and finally, remember the glory of Christ. Remember the glory of Christ. Verses 5 and 6. Uh, it's a healthy and a humbling thing when you realize that you've been reading a part of the Bible subtly wrongly. I had that experience this week with chapter 4, verse 6. On one level, very straightforward. Paul is describing there in 4, verse 6, the miracle of creation. A creation not so much at the beginning, but the work of new creation in, in the heart of the, the person who becomes a Christian. He compares that moment, the moment someone becomes a Christian, with the moment God spoke light into the world at the beginning. It's the same sort of miracle, he says. He takes us back to Genesis 1 with the cosmos, formless and void, a dark, empty abyss. And the next moment, God speaks, and the universe is flooded with brilliant light. That, says Paul, is what happens in a person's heart when they become a Christian. It's no less a miracle that the light-giving, life-giving Word of God comes to them with power, and it floods their mind and their heart with light. The blindfold is removed, and they see glory. They see Christ for the first time, his beauty, the wonder of his saving death on the cross. That Christ goes from being just another figure in history to the Lord of glory and their only hope. This miracle of conversion, this breaking in of God's light into a person's heart, keeps Paul going, keeps him proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. Verse 5, not himself, but Jesus Christ. Until this week, I thought that the motivation worked like this. Paul kept preaching Christ because he knew that as he preached Christ, other people would see the glory of Christ. Now, that is true. He said something very similar in chapter 3. It's incredibly motivating to, uh, for us to know that as we preach Christ, there will be those who have the light of God break into them. They see the glory of Christ for the first time because of what we say. That's an incredibly motivating thing, but that motivation only goes so far. If what keeps us going are results, it might not take too many rejections for us to want to give up. Let's look more closely at verse 6 then. What, what is Paul saying? Verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Ours. The apostles, first of all, and then believers in general. God has shone in our hearts. The reason, Paul says, I don't lose heart when people reject my message, the reason I refuse to change the message is because I've seen the glory of God in Christ. I've seen it. I've seen it, and I can never unsee it. I've seen something so wonderful, I just can't stop talking about it. What is it that you can't stop talking about? You know the sort of thing, a man falls in love and he can't stop talking about her. 
Your friend goes off on a gap year, sees the world, and for the next six months won't shut up about the amazing things she's seen. Or it's something more low-key. You read a fantastic book, and you look for every chance to recommend it. A piece of music that makes your heart swell, and you just keep on playing it to others, whether or not they want to hear it. You're so caught up with it that something has captured you, and it's all you want to talk about. The Apostle Paul has been captured by the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. The beauty of his loving death on the cross, the beauty of his resurrection, of his loving reign at God's right hand, his perfect justice, his gentle kindness to sinners, his compassion for the hurting, his forgiveness, his friendship. God has shown Paul his masterpiece. And so Paul proudly puts it on display. And when you've seen the beauty that God has put into the gospel, when you've seen the glory of Christ, why would you ever tamper with it? Why would you hide parts of it? And why would rejection stop you talking about it to everybody who would listen? Every Christian will be discouraged in the service of God at some point or other, especially if we focus on the visible results. But what will keep us going, maybe more than anything else, is remembering and seeing again in the pages of Scripture the saving glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning some of us have grown weary over many years. The zeal and the passion that we knew as a young Christian has been replaced with a sort of disillusionment, a despondency, even a cynicism. We're still a Christian, just not a very enthusiastic one. Over many years we've lost heart. And if that's you, will you ask the Lord to do verse 6 for you all over again? Ask the Lord to help you to remember the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, shine your light on Christ. Capture me again so that I never lose heart. Give me the zeal of a convert. Capture my heart, loosen my tongue, and help me to keep on boldly proclaiming, not myself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's pray together.